0: I invite you to turn with me to God's Word, to Luke chapter 19 this morning. Luke 19. For centuries, people believed that Aristotle was right on just about everything. In fact, even some theology by the medieval church looked to Aristotle more than it did God's Word to understand who God was. But he was believed and trusted in more than just those things as well, but also in science. And it was believed for a long time that Aristotle was right when he said that the heavier an object was, the faster it would fall to the earth, that gravity would pull down the heavier object faster than the lighter object. He was regarded as one of the greatest thinkers of all time, and no one thought to question him. Anyone could have, of course, taken two objects of varying weights and dropped them and saw, but nobody bothered because surely Aristotle was right. But 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Galileo believed Aristotle was wrong. And in 1589, he summoned learned professors. The base of the leaning tower of Pisa went to the top and dropped off two objects. One weighing one pound in weight, the other weighing 10 pounds in weight and watched confidently as both impacted the ground at the same time, thus clearly, obviously disproving Aristotle's belief about gravity and weight. And yet, for all their learning, those professors were so ingrained in their trust and their confidence in Aristotle, they denied what they saw with their eyes and walked away saying, no, Aristotle is still right. The power of their conviction led them to deny what they saw with their own eyes, believing Galileo to be wrong. Now, we might chuckle at that, but that is not a one-time event. In fact, human history is littered with people seeing truth, factual information, and yet denying it because of their faith in other Everyone is capable of that kind of self-delusion because we are more comfortable with certain facts, certain beliefs, and certain preferences than we are about the truth. Just think about how certain placebos have an effect on our life. There is absolutely no medicinal value to what is being taken, and yet we believe with confidence it is helping us in our life. I saw an interesting infographic. It was about all of the herbal supplements that are uh, produced in stores. And it was this graph that uh, was um, set up in such a way that it had all of the ones that had a clear scientific basis that these things are helping you for the things they're supposed to be helping you with on down to those that were of no benefit whatsoever. And um, obviously, science can, can be wrong. Uh, we of all people know that, uh, but it was amazing the the number of commenters that insisted, though these things were at the very bottom of this list, having no, no evidential effect whatsoever on the human body, they insisted that they were being benefited from those things. Well, we are capable of such self-delusion, but so were those who lived In Jesus' time. In fact, this morning as we look to Luke chapter 19 and on into chapter 20, we see people who are not blind to truth but willfully disbelieve what is true in front of them, specifically what they see in the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's see what Luke has to say for us as we begin reading at Luke chapter 19 verse 47. We're told that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on His words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to Him, Tell us by what authority do you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is God's Word, His inerrant, inspired Word. Hear it and believe. The theme that runs through this passage is that of authority. And if we're honest, most of us don't like authority. Most of us don't respond well to authority in our lives. We don't like government authority over our lives, especially our money. We don't like police authority over the speed at which we drive on the highway. And if we're honest, we often struggle with God's own authority over our lives. And yet it's that authority, it's that authority that we precisely need, that we benefit from. And it's that authority, it's specifically the authority of God in Christ that we see in these verses we see his rightful guidance and instruction and the futility of rejecting and resisting that authority those themes are all played out in four ways from this passage first we see that we see Jesus authority on display we see Jesus authority displayed Now, remember that just before this, Jesus had entered into the temple area and drove out the sellers and money changers from the court of the Gentiles. We looked at that last Sunday. So if you weren't here, you can go online and you can listen to that. He rebuked the Jews who cared nothing for the worship of God, yet still offered the sacrifices, believing that they would protect them from their sin. In other words, we're going to do whatever we want. We're going to transgress God's law. But if we just offer the sacrifices, then God will not punish us. Thus, their worship was little more than fire insurance. It was in vain, and Jesus dramatically upended their practices and gained their attention. He condemned them for the hypocrisy that was on display, but He didn't leave them like that. He didn't just kind of come in, rebuke the people, and leave it hanging there like that. Notice that after cleansing the temple, Luke says that Jesus was now teaching daily in the temple. Jesus went about to shepherd His people they had been poorly led by those that had been poor shepherds the priests the priests were the god ordained shepherds of israel given the responsibility to teach and to apply the law in every aspect of life to provide guidance for the people of israel that would lead them to god but instead they were leading the people away from god they were not just the priests, but there were self-appointed scribes and Pharisees, lay leaders, and they were also doing the same thing. Rather than cultivating a sense of brokenness and contrite hearts that called out for God's mercy and faith, they set an example of hypocrisy and self-justification before God. But Jesus is different than all that. He is the good shepherd over his people, lovingly teaching his people the truth of God's word. Specifically, notice what he taught. A verse later in in chapter 20, we're told that he was preaching the gospel. That is the cure for spiritual hypocrisy. That is the medicine that attacks pride in our hearts and grows humility in our souls. The gospel of Christ. The good news of a Savior who humbly dies in the place of sinners, that they might be reconciled to God. It is a message not of work hard to earn God's love, but rather God is extending His love by grace. And so it's through this pastoral care that Jesus not only teaches the people but actually exercises his authority over the people. The last 2 weeks and the major chunk of chapter 19 we've seen Jesus being presented as a king over his people. But think how does he rule? On a very practical level, how do you know what the king's wishes are? How does the king exercise his authority over his servants? How do the servants know how to honor the king's name? How do you know as his people how to live under the authority of King Jesus? Quite simply, you know these things by taking heed according to God's word. That's how Jesus exercises his direct authority even over his people today. As we think about that, we need to ask ourselves whether or not Christ actually has authority over our life. To cut ourselves off from, to ignore, to take lightly Christ's word is to cut ourselves off from, ignore, and take lightly Christ's authority. How do we respond to His word? How do we listen? How do we believe even in the task this morning, we understand that, that, that whether it's me or anybody else in any other pulpit over the last 24 hours preaching to the congregation, that pastor, that preacher, that shepherd has no inherent authority whatsoever. He only has authority when he is rightly preaching Christ's word to Christ's people. If he is not, then he bears no authority over those people. And if that word is preached rightly, that is, if it's preached according to the intention of God Himself and its, and its uh explanation and application, then we see from the scripture that Christ is actually preaching through that pastor, exercising his authority through him and the preached word. Decades ago, some of you will know the famous minister at London's Westminster Chapel named Martin Lloyd Jones. He was well known as an expositor and a very far-reaching ministry. Uh, moreover, there are many pastors today who uh, grew up either um, listening to his ministry, being exposed to it, or though maybe a, a generation removed did not hear him live, but were able to listen to recordings and have had their, their ministry shaped by those sermons and those books. He left a profound mark on a, a certain cross-section of the evangelical church today. And though it's hard to fathom in this endless day of podcasting, Lloyd-Jones actually did not like having his sermons recorded. In fact, for a long time, his messages were actually taped secretly by the deacons in his church because he didn't want to have the sermons recorded and handed out on tapes. Why? Because he was under the conviction that something significant is taking place during the sermon. It's more than just a talk. It's more than just an exalted Bible study. From passages like John 10 and Romans 10 and Ephesians 2, Lloyd-Jones believed that Christ was speaking directly to his people through the rightly preached word. Thus, to him, it was irreverent to be able to hear a sermon while you did something like mowing the grass. Or worse, you could decide that the sermon wasn't really to your liking and so turn off the preacher in the middle of what he was saying. Now, his sermons obviously were eventually recorded. We record those. So regardless of how you feel about listening to downloaded sermons, his conviction was nevertheless driven by something that we probably rarely actually think about. And that is the continuing Exercising of Christ's authority through the preached word. He is shepherding over the church through the preaching of the word. Therefore, we should take care how we read, how we believe, how we respond to that word. In fact, we see in this final week of Jesus' life the very power of his authoritative teaching and how the people respond. Luke says in verse 48 of chapter 19, all the people were hanging on his words. That might even sound a little anachronistic as if that the translators have, have gone an extra step in putting that in the modern language, but that's exactly what Luke writes, that they, the people were hung on Christ's teaching. In other words, they were captivated by it. They were leaning on it, trusting it. They could feel His concern as well as His authority, and they were gripped by it. How much more should we also today with the fullness of His Word come to be hung on it as well, to have that dependence, that trust, that confidence in the authority of Christ to lead us and teach us by His Word. But notice the contrast between the people and their leaders. The people were hanging on His words, but in verse 47, the chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Him. And so we saw, we see, um, we see the authority of Jesus through his teaching, but now we also see Jesus' authority being challenged. Jesus' authority challenged. That's the second way in which we see the authority of Christ presented in this passage. Who were these men that were seeking to destroy Jesus, that were challenging his authority? Well, they're the same people that um, are mentioned at the beginning of chapter 20. Uh, We see the people in the temple in which Jesus is preaching the gospel. There are chief priests and scribes and elders that come to him. Now that group uh, describes, that grouping of people describe the Sanhedrin Council of Israel. Those weren't just random people that happened to be there and, and show up. These were the representative leadership of Israel. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 Jewish men who served as the ruling elders over the nation. They were a buffer between uh, Israel and the Roman government it included people men from the scribes the Sadducees the Pharisees and it was presided over that group was presided over by the current high priest so these are the kind of men that should have led the people to godliness instead they are so sinful they're blind to their own need of Jesus as the Messiah further still Luke tells they didn't just reject Jesus they were seeking to destroy Jesus so when you see them coming to Jesus as a group you know they're it's no good Nothing good is going to come out of their intentionality here. They've seen him clean out the court of the Gentiles, the temple. They've heard him teach and preach the gospel from God's word, but they challenge him. Verse 2, tell us by what authority do you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, why are they asking him that? Because they want to trap him they're seeking to have him say something that will either lead to him being discredited in the eyes of the people, or that they will have something to bring a charge against him with. But Jesus will not play that game. They ask him a question with authority. He says, okay, let me ask you this question first. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, at first that may seem like, what does that have to do with anything? We're talking about my authority, and still we're talking about John's baptism. A guy has been dead, ministry long, over what is going on. But remember, remember in your mind's eye, either because you've read it before or you were here for the sermons, back to the beginning of Luke's gospel and how John was introduced in such a dramatic fashion. Remember, an angel appeared to his father and foretold John's birth. He even said, this is what you're going to name him, that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Luke makes it clear that John's ministry was indeed from God. In fact, he was the greatest of all the old covenant prophets because he was the one who literally paved the way for the promised Christ. He was able to look to Jesus and say, that is your Messiah. That is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so in preparation for Jesus' coming, his ministry beginning, John called for the people to get right with God, to be baptized as a sign of their repentance and preparation for the coming Savior. But here's the problem. The same leaders that were rejecting Jesus' ministry also rejected John's ministry. Do you remember? Do you remember why or do you know why? Well, at least two reasons. First of all, because baptism was something in that day that the Gentiles went through when they converted to Judaism. In other words, if you were a Roman, if you were a Greek, but you came to believe that the God of Israel was the one true God, then part of your initiation after the circumcision, maybe before actually, I don't know, but part of that transition was you were ritually baptized. You were dunked into the water and symbolically cleansed of all of your Gentile ways. Therefore, they saw no need for them to experience such a thing as baptism. After all, they were physical children of Abraham and had no need to repent before God. But secondly, the practice of baptism was also reserved for the Levitical priests. Not just anybody baptized the converts coming from the Gentile peoples. John was not a priest. He was acting as a prophet. Therefore, he thought, they thought he had no authority to baptize. Those leaders had rejected John's ministry and baptism, but the everyday people flocked to John. I mean, here is a strange dude wearing strange clothes with strange hair eating strange food but people would go way out into the wilderness to hear him preach. And they loved it. And they were getting baptized left, right, and center. Jews and Gentiles, poor people, Roman soldiers. They were all coming to John, believing his message. Therefore, as my Hebrew professor from seminary used to be so fond of saying, the people here found themselves, the leaders found themselves cast on the horns of a dilemma. If they, if they denied John's ministry... And the people wouldn't like them. They would rebel. They would, they would say, you guys are, don't know what you're talking about. Of course, John was from God. But if they say, yes, John was from God, John pointed to Jesus, therefore they should accept Jesus. So I imagine much like those people that testify before Congress and they're asked a very pointed and specific question, and they know if they answer honestly, they're going to incriminate themselves. So they cover the microphone and lean over to talk to their Lord or their compatriot quietly, trying to get their answer together. These, these, these Sanhedrin leaders look at each other and say, uh, give us a minute. And they kind of do the powwow. What are we going to say? What are we going to say? If we say this, people are going to reject us. If we say this, we've got, to, we've got to admit that Jesus is right. What are we going to do? So what do they do? They punt. We don't know where John's ministry came from. Jesus says, fine then. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, why does he answer that? Well, think about what he's done. Jesus, in turning the question around on them, he shows, he reveals the hardness of their hearts. How can they be so opposed to Jesus' ministry if they cannot even discern where John's ministry came from? Clearly, just by not only the amount of time, but the kinds of things Jesus was doing, his ministry was greater If the lesser ministry cannot be acknowledged to be from God, then they have no right themselves to even ask the question of knowing whether or not Jesus' ministry is from God. In other words, they are inherently opposed to Jesus' ministry and they have no right to be. They have no right to be if they cannot even be openly opposed to John's ministry. So what Jesus is trying to get them to see, what Jesus knows is that they weren't just blind They just couldn't see who Jesus was. No, it was more than that. They could see. They had the evidence in front of them. The truth was laid bare and they denied it. They hardened their hearts and said, we don't want you to have authority over us. We don't want you to be our king. We don't want you to be our Messiah. They have seen Jesus' authority in teaching, his authority over demonic powers, his authority over illness and even death itself. They've seen all those things. But they're not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah they're looking for. And therefore, they challenge his authority. They're simply hard hearted hypocrites. Like a beast of burden refusing the direction of a farmer, they are bucking and kicking against their God. And the same is true for us. Whenever we find ourselves challenging Jesus' authority by shunning the responsibilities that He has so clearly laid out, by embracing misplaced priorities, by making excuses for disobedience, we are no better than the snake in the garden saying, did Jesus really say that we ought to do that? Did Jesus really say that that activity was off limits? We do those things not because we cannot see who Jesus is or know that He has authority over our lives, but because we have hardened our hearts towards him. And if that's where we're at today, then we need to cry out to God for forgiveness and for mercy. We need to ask that he would make us like sheep who hear and know and follow the voice of their shepherd, that we might hear and know and follow again the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be his sheep and to follow him in faith. These leaders don't simply stop at challenging Jesus' authority. Jesus says that ultimately his authority will be outright rejected. That's a third way that we see his authority pictured in this passage. We see Jesus' authority rejected. Authority rejected. Jesus shuts down the wicked leaders of Israel in terms of their ability to question, but then he goes on to show just how far they will go in rejecting him. And he does this through a parable. Now, sometimes Jesus uses parables to hide truth from his hearers. But that's not really the case here, just the opposite. The imagery and implications cannot be clearer. Jesus is not, is not trying to say, well, here's a little truth on the side. I'll explain to my disciples later, but I'm not going to give it to them. No, this is a, this is a kind of you know, uh, in-your-face kind of story to help them to see just how bad they're going to be and just how severe the consequences are. Listen to what he says. Verse 9, he began to tell the people this parable saying, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, just the verses by themselves are clear enough to get the main point, but several things are happening in the background of this parable that we need, to, we need to be aware of to be able to see the fullness of what Jesus is saying. First of all, there's the, the nature of vineyards in Jesus' day. This was actually a very common practice for a wealthy man to buy a vineyard and then to uh, set it up, get it going, and then hire people to come and work that for him as he went back to his home and would simply send servants or stewards to go and either collect profits or the actual produce that was um, produced from the vineyard. Uh, those owners may never see that field, but they would still reap the benefit from it. But more importantly is the imagery of the vineyard itself. Now, if you have been with us for the last, I guess, three years now, entering into our fourth year of reading through the whole Bible over the course of two years, this imagery should mean something to you. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the prophets especially, Israel is God's vineyard Israel is God's vine. You see that picture over and over and over again. And and, and so just just like we would associate ourselves with the eagle, or we would associate Russia with the bear, or China with the dragon, or Canada with the maple leaf. So Israel was associated with the vineyard. In fact, such was the national sense of identity that that Israel had with this vineyard symbology that behind Jesus in the temple itself, covering the arch, uh, carved right into the arch before you pass from the court into the holy place, was an ornately carved grape, some grapevine, 70 cubits high. Right behind Jesus is this grapevine imagery. So the people know immediately a man plants a vineyard, it's God planting Israel. There's no doubt that Jesus here is speaking of his people. I mean, you can imagine someone telling a story saying, you know, there was a group of donkeys and a group of elephants that came together in a large prominent city. Uh, to discuss business now, you know exactly what we're talking about, right? Politics and government, and so Jesus immediately has their attention, and in fact, sometimes when Jesus preaches a parable it's really a big picture kind of a thing. You can't press the details too far or else it doesn't make it it starts to break down. it doesn't make sense. But here, every single character in the parable has an analogous person in real life. God is the man who plants a vineyard. He called Israel to himself. He established them in the promised land. He gave them a law and he set over them priests and elders to care for them. But what happened? God tells us in Isaiah 5, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn hewn out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. God was faithful to his promises to Adam and Eve in the garden, to Noah and to Abraham, and he produced this people, and he desired for them to produce the fruit of righteousness, following after him in love and obedience. But instead, when he came back, what did he find? Sour grapes, wild fruit, good for nothing. All he found was the fruit of disobedience and sin. So what did he do? Just like in the man of the parable, he sent servants, he sent prophets to draw out fruit from the vineyard. Jeremiah makes this clear when God says, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck. They did worse than their fathers in the wilderness. Jesus even makes clear back in chapter 13 of Luke's gospel, Israel killed the prophets just as the wicked tenants do in this parable. Rather than respect the authority of the vineyard's owners, they refuse and want to do things their way. They don't want to listen to the servants but kill them. And that's what Israel did to the prophets. They would come and say, be warned. God's judgment is coming for your sin. And they said, we don't like to hear that message. So they cast Jeremiah off into a well hoping that he dies there. They saw the prophet Isaiah in two. But to the prophets that would come and say, no, no, peace, peace, everything's fine. God loves us. God is is fine with how we are living our life. They would listen to them and allow them to be well fed and even bring them into the temple courts in the presence of the wicked kings. Think about the patience of the owner here. The, The one servant is killed and news comes back and he does not immediately swoop in with soldiers. He sends another servant and another servant, giving them time to reconsider, to repent, to yield the fruit they have been entrusted to produce. Additionally, think of the sacrifice of the owner. He sends not just his servants, but his own son. And we think of Hebrews, which begins in that great way, saying, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. What an astonishing gift. But what is the response? The son arrives and they say, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. you you understand the indictment that Jesus is making about the leaders of Israel? Rather than actually loving God and loving the people as they're commanded to do, they love themselves. So it doesn't matter if the people are being godly as long as they, the leaders, are being well taken care of. As long as they are well thought of. As long as their prominence and their authority remains then they're happy. Here is Jesus. God's beloved son the declaration they themselves heard when jesus went out and was baptized in their place under john's baptism and god the father boomed out of heaven this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased israel was supposed to be my beloved son but they have disobeyed they have turned away and they have lacked faith and have disobeyed but this this is my son my beloved son with whom i am well pleased They are standing in the presence of the King of heaven, the glory of the temple made flesh before their eyes with all the authority of his heavenly Father. And rather than fall down in worship, they are about to cast him out of the city to a place of wickedness and death as they conspire to have him crucified. And then the Father will be patient no more. Jesus ends his teaching by showing that though rejected now, he will one day be vindicated. I read uh, one man talking about going to see a, um, a play that was done in England about uh, Henry VIII, uh, one of his wives, and how she was a, a, a godly Christian woman but was ultimately killed. And it was a real downer because that's how the play ended. And he said that the people in the play felt like, you know, there needed to be a happy ending to send people away with. So uh, though that was the, the end of the play as written, they came out and started horsing around and telling jokes and making light and then took their bow and concluded the show so everybody could go away happy. And he made the point here as he was talking about this sermon that Jesus doesn't end the sermon that way. Jesus does not end the message that way, that it'll all be okay in the end. He says, no. He says, no, though my, though my authority is on display and you challenge it and you will reject it ultimately, my authority will be vindicated. That's the last expression of Christ's authority that we see in this passage. Jesus' authority vindicated, vindicated. Jesus says that the tenants threw the son out of the vineyard and killed him. Then he asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. How do the people respond? Verse 16, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. People realize what Jesus is saying. Again, it's clear the imagery that's being used. The kingdom will be taken away from Israel and given to others because they have rejected the authority of the servants and the son that God has sent. These religious leaders thought they were coming to judge Jesus, but Jesus has judged them and he will judge them in the future. In just a few days, they're going to have Jesus killed by the Romans. They think they've won, but they've not won. They've not won at all. In fact, as Peter will later say, that Jesus was delivered up by the hands of lawless men. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's his sermon to Jesus' murderers in Acts 2. And notice Jesus here quotes Psalm 118 to show that the king, the leaders rejected, will indeed reign. Though he was a stone rejected by men, he becomes the chief cornerstone of God's people. He becomes that that essential placement of a foundation by which everything else is keyed off of. Everything else is built around its perfect structure. So though he is rejected as the promised Savior of Israel, Jesus was approved by God and therefore became the Savior of all humanity. And that would be accomplished through his cross whereby like Jesus would willingly bear the judgment of others. And so as Jesus here speaking in the temple, teaching about the salvation that is to come, He Himself would become a perfect temple. In His body, He would become the place of final atonement for sins, making possible a way for unholy and ungodly people to be made holy and counted as God's own sons. And Jesus' words are still true today. There is not only a judgment that befell Israel in A.D. 70, whereby... Um, Rome finally collapsed in on them, wiped out the temple, left nothing but rubbles there, scattering the Jewish people all throughout the world. But there is a judgment that is still coming, a final vindication against all who would reject the authority of Christ as their Savior. For all who live by their own authority, who believe they will be accepted by their own good deeds, or who bow to another God in the hopes of some kind of salvation, they will be broken apart by Christ, the cornerstone. Like a frail old man who falls to the pavement and feels his bones shatter throughout his body, so will sinners feel the shattering of their souls in hell. Unless we be tempted to look back on these leaders with disdain, thinking to ourselves, I thank you, God, that I am not like them. Pause and remember your own sins. Pause and remember just this week. Remember when you were angry without cause, When you use the mouth that God gave you to bless people to cut them down and inflict pain on them. Remember when you pridefully looked down on someone else or selfishly failed to love God's people in servant-minded ways. Remember when you thought lustful thoughts or sought out mental or digital images to provoke more lustful thoughts that led you to abuse your body. Remember when you disobeyed your parents or sassed with belligerent, belligerent, belligerent words. Remember when you consistently chose television or Facebook or family or sleep over communion with God. When you did those things, you were also rejecting Christ's authority and you were also putting Christ on the cross. It was for those sins that he also had to die those many years ago. And yet he died that you might be forgiven of those sins and brought into fellowship with God. Martin Luther once said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. But that's not God's response. Even now, we who are guilty of putting his son on the cross, God holds out to us the, author of sal- the offer of salvation. And so as Spurgeon says so well, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, He dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. This morning, as we have seen over and over again, this book has been written, this gospel of Luke, that you might repent and believe. And in beholding the glory of Christ, you will come to submit to the authority of Christ. Experiencing his saving grace, you can then yield to his guiding mercy. We must not suppose that we are wiser than God or more righteous than God. Your heavenly Father loves you and cares for you and knows what's best for you. So that even when you cannot see in from beginning, when you cannot make heads or tails or sense of what is going on around you, simply trust and obey. For living under God's authority is a grace and the very thing that we were made for. It's not your sin, but His leadership alone that will lead to a joyful satisfaction of your soul. Father, as we consider the authority of Christ, how that is displayed in our lives even today, the benefit that comes from that, and the temptation to challenge and even reject that, we pray that that we would not be like those in this passage who were unwilling to believe the truth that was evident to them. God, we pray that just the opposite as we consider the love made manifest through Christ, that we in turn will love Him and joyfully obey His commands, submitting to His authority, knowing that life under His kingship is far better, far better than a life consumed by our sin. Lord, help us to see that His yoke is easy, His burden is light. Make this clear to us as we gaze at the glory of Christ in the cross, and in His resurrection. Lord, we ask this in His name. Amen.